Contending for the faith one verse at a time. This is Truth Matters Church. After months of preparation, today we open the incredible book of Revelation, examining the importance of the very first verse. This sets the stage for Revelation, and having a solid foundation of who knows what and when they knew it will certainly help us properly interpret the rest of this letter. Download the handout for this study at truthmatterschurch.org or find it attached to our message on Sermon Audio. Here is Pastor Alex. Right, as I mentioned, we will begin our study in the book of Revelation today. Um, I do have some opening comments uh, before we dive right in. And as I mentioned earlier, we did spend four months to lay the foundation for our study. Can I say it another way? We had a four-month introduction. We had a four-month introduction to the book of Revelation. Now, how many of you have had a four-month introduction to any other book? Okay, how about this? Has anyone had one month, an introduction, just someone introducing one of the books of the Bible to you, and let's say they took about a month? And the four months, it happened to turn out that way, and I did want to try to cut it short somewhat, but there was a lot of legwork that needed to be done. And we've spent those four months, you know, trying to exercise disciplines and, and stay diligent to what the Scripture says, because at the end, we want to know the truth. You know, Jesus said himself, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. So we've done this four mark, we embarked on this introduction, introductory journey so that we can lay the foundation so that we can finally get to the bottom of a very, very confusing book. And with God's help, I'll try my best to consolidate where I can and communicate what the scripture is saying so that by it we can embrace the truth and allow that truth to strengthen our faith. Um, So if this is your first study or if you've only caught part of the studies, again, just be sure to catch up. Because if not, then you you might get more lost. And that's what I don't want for you. Uh, So please try your best to, to stay up with our studies so that we uh, can move forward collectively together. And another opening comment, as far as eschatology, when you hear the word eschatology, it's a study of end times. And I do want to say, eschatology is not essential for faith, meaning your view or my view on eschatology is not essential to be saved. Just know that. Um, So we might not all agree or understand eschatology, and I want to say this up front. If we don't agree or we don't understand, it's okay. We're going to try our best to continue to plow through it. But I do want to say that eschatology is vitally important to grow in our faith. And um, just so you know, I would say the past several months, I've only been in Revelation and Daniel so that's been pretty much just running through my mind for, for many, many months now. I am going back to the New Testament and going through the New Testament from the Gospels all the way up to the book of Revelation. And here's one, and you know, I'm just starting to pick up some things because now that we're studying eschatology and end times, a lot of scriptures didn't make sense. And now, you know, having some form of eschatology, a, a biblical eschatology, then you can see some of these scriptures make even more sense. So here's one example of what I'm talking about. So, for example, I'm in the Gospels. 
So in Matthew 12, and we're all familiar with this passage, the scribes and Pharisees were seeking after a sign. And let me pick it up in verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, to Jesus, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Here's what I didn't pick up on. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Verse 42, the queen of the south who visited Solomon will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So in this passage, we might have just glossed over it But it says the men of Nineveh, back in those days, back in the days of Jonah, is going to rise up when? With this generation, the generation at Jesus' time. And the men of Nineveh, with this generation, will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. So there's going to be this rising up, this judgment. What judgment? What do you mean? Where? When? Thankfully, the book of Revelation gives us when that timing is going to be. So this is just one example. You know, again, the the queen of the south is also going to rise up. And she was at the time of Solomon. And she's going to rise up with this generation, Jesus' generation, at the judgment and will condemn it. So there's going to be a rise. People are going to stand up and are going to condemn the generation that refused to believe in Jesus as Messiah, or repented, or didn't repent at the preaching of God's holy prophets. So my point in this is, without a landing point of end times prophecy and judgments, we're going to be short-sighted in our faith. And that's why when Jesus said in Matthew 24, the elect can be deceived if possible. How do you think the elect that are spoken of in that warning may be deceived is because they have no insight into what the Lord Jesus Christ warned leading up to the times of the end. So um, another way to look at it, you know, for some of us, you might be like, you know what, end times, end times, blah, 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 who cares? You know, all that matters is that we, be, you know, we believe in Jesus, we, we acknowledge that, you know, we have sin, and that there's no other forgiveness apart from our faith in Christ, and that's enough. And that is enough in terms of being saved, but kind of look at it this way. Imagine watching a movie that has no ending. So let's say you're going to embark on this Christian journey, and you're watching a movie, and it doesn't go anywhere. It just goes on and on and on. Or imagine reading a novel with no ending. It just The pages never stop. It's not going anywhere. So when we begin, into, and, and we begin with our faith walk and, and, and start living out our, our faith, we need to know where is it going. And thankfully, the Scripture gives us that. It tells us in graphic detail where all of history is going and where we will will find ourselves in those different epochs of time. Um, You know, Peter said himself, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the Word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted 
the kindness of the Lord. And I do want to say this. If you have an interest in, in the study of Revelation, that's a, a good indication that God's Spirit's in you. That's a good indication that you have faith and that you've been born again and that you're a child of God and you want to know what's in store you know, for the things to come. So although eschatology is not essential to be saved, it is essential to grow in our faith. So nonetheless, we will, even though it's not essential to be saved, we're going to seek the treasures and blessings. It promises using, and I have this acronym here, ROEs stands for rules of engagement. In one of our past studies, we talked about, you know, what are kind of the, the 10 principles or the 10 rules that we must follow to make sure that we fall uh, that we must not violate and follow so that we can keep ourselves from mishandling the text so you can refer um, in particular even our last study for that uh, as a reminder our approach to studying revelation this is our approach we're going to about to open up the book we're going we're going to read and interpret revelation with an old testament foundation so we're going to uphold the Abrahamic covenant. We're going to uphold the Mosaic covenant. We're going to uphold the biblical feasts as markers, even though for many of us aren't Jews, they're still significant. We're going to uphold the Davidic covenant. David was promised an everlasting kingdom. We believe that. We accept that. We're going to uphold that. And that is continue, that's going to play itself out in the book of Revelation. We're going to uphold all of the Old Testament prophecies, and we're also going to recognize that the Old Testament, the New Testament prophecies is a continuation of the Old Testament prophecies. It's a continuation. So just as Daniel's visions um, as the cornerstone of the Old Testament, John fills in the blanks and takes us to the end with more detail. Uh, we're going to be reading Revelation in its Middle Eastern setting. So the people of Israel, Jerusalem is the epicenter of all end times prophecy. And as a reminder, don't be hurt by this, but Jesus came to the Jews first. Jesus came to the Jews first, then the Gentiles. And if you want some scripture references for that, Matthew 15, 24, and Romans 1, 16, just to name a couple. And Christianity began in the land of Israel, and Christianity will conclude in the land of Israel. So right there, when we're reading the book of Revelation, it's not going to happen in the United States of America. So sorry, Mormons, who teach that after Jesus' death and resurrection, he came to the United States. Um, there is no prophecies that will be fulfilled with end, time, end times prophecies in particular with the land of the United States as the epicenter. It's not the case. It'll be in the land of Israel. It started there. It's going to conclude in the land of Israel. And that's how we're going to approach this study. And we're going to read and accept it chronologically and sequentially. We're going to read chapters 1 through 22, the way it's given, uh, and we're going to keep in mind when John says, after these things I looked, we know that, okay, he's now progressing to the next part of the vision and the next time on the timeline, the next event on the timeline. After these things I looked. And we know that he's continuing to look further, further, and down history, and, but in that timeline chronologically and sequentially. We're going to read it with a literal fulfillment. We're not going to over-spiritualize the text. 
All prophecies are literally fulfilled. For example, all of the prophecies concerning Christ, I haven't counted them, but it's been told that concerning Christ and his first coming, there's over 300 prophecies. And that means all of those 300 prophecies that were concerning his first coming was literally fulfilled in exact precision and detail. And given the book of Revelation is the prophecy, there's a literal fulfillment as well. It's not just spiritual. It's going to manifest itself and come to completion and fruition in the physical. And then last but not least, as I mentioned, Revelation, uh, we're going to read it as prophecy. John and Jesus call this entire book the prophecy. So meaning from chapters 1 through 22, we're going to read it from ahead of John when he wrote this, which was around 95, 96 AD. And when we know that from chapter 1, it's no sooner than 95 or 96 AD, and we know that it takes us all the way to the final eternal state. So with that, are we ready for our scripture reading? Let's open up the book of Revelation, shall we? And we will read the first three verses. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. So we're going to walk through uh, these first three verses. And as you'll see, there's a lot here. We might have just read it, glossed over it, but we will begin to exposit it. Uh, Let's relook at verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John. We're going to spend a little bit of time in verse 1 because there's a lot here. Now let's look at it. Revelation is apocalypsis, and it means to unveil or to uncover or to reveal. And that's where we get our English word apocalypse. In today's and modern time today, when you hear apocalypse, it's usually sensationalized because it's really associated with kind of the the end of the world, the doom and gloom. Um, But really, just quite literally, if you want to be technical, the, uh, the apocalypse or the revelation of Jesus Christ is just really meaning the unveiling, the uncovering. But as we'll see in the book, there are some doom and gloom that's going to come upon the earth. So they're often associated. But just know that from a technical standpoint, apocalypse doesn't mean the end of the world. It just means the unveiling in the literally in the Greek. But it's associated with the end of the world and what's going to happen. Uh, So this book of Revelation is what is about events that's going to occur leading up to the revelation or the unveiling of Jesus to elect saints and the world in the end times. So this entire book is the unveiling of the Lord Jesus Christ. But before he's unveiled to the world, what's going to happen before he's revealed and what's going to happen after he's revealed. Revelation is going to give us all that. Um, We are going to take a little bit of time in verse 1 to look at these three things, which God gave him. You're like, so what? No, there's there's a lot there. His bondservants, 
and must soon take place. So let's look at which God gave him. Okay, how many of us are guilty when you read which God gave him? You're like, okay, end of story, let's move on. Kind of glossed over it. I, I did that first. Come on, everybody. Come on, raise everybody, raise your hand. All right, there we go. I feel better now. So as we did in our first John study, this is what we've done, and I'm glad we went through that study together for many of us, is when it says he, him, they, them, put in the person or group that's being talked about, and I'm telling you, it opens things up quite a bit. So we're going to take that and we're going to input the persons of the Trinity in this phrase, which God gave him. Here, so here's verse 1. I'm going to read it without the subjects, and then we're going to input the persons of the Trinity. So the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place, and he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John. Okay, now let's put in the persons of the Trinity, including any other person that's being spoken of. And tell me if it sounds a little different. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God the Father gave God the Son to show Jesus' bondservants the things which must soon take place. And Jesus sent and communicated it by his angel to Jesus' bondservant, John. Is that hopefully a little more clear? So which God gave him, if you're taking notes, and if you look at the top of the slide here, this is, you can write, which God gave him equals which God the Father gave God the Son. Okay. Now you might have glossed over this, but this is very, very foundational. It's the very, very first verse in the book of Revelation. Here's a truth. God the Father gave Jesus the entire prophecy contained in this book. I'm going to say it again. God the Father gave God the Son the entire prophecy of this book. The Father and Jesus are co-authors of the book of Revelation. You can throw the Holy Spirit in there, of course, but I want to be a little technical here. Which God gave him is speaking about the Father giving to the Son. The Father gave the details to Jesus. Jesus, in turn, sent his angel to deliver the prophecy to his bondservant, John. And we've seen that activity in the angelic realm in our study of Daniel. So when Daniel was given visions and the interpretation of the visions, Gabriel would arrive on the scene and give him the visions and also the interpretation of it. So along those lines, John was given the vision from the angel. But whose angel? Jesus' angel. And what's the significance of this? And here's where, if we glossed over it, I think we would have been off to the wrong footing even before we begin to read the rest of the book of Revelation. Since Jesus is the giver of this prophecy, chapters 1 through 22, everything we're about to study right now, Jesus is the giver of this prophecy. Jesus knows the times and epochs set by his Father. Which means this. Jesus knows the events that's going to occur before and after his glorious return. Because that's what the book of Revelation is about. It's about the unveiling from, you know, of Jesus to the world. 
So Jesus gave the details. This is what's going to happen before I'm revealed, then I'm revealed, and here's what's going to happen after I'm revealed. Here's what this also means, and this is important. Jesus knows the day and hour of his return. He's not spiritually blindfolded. Okay, Dad, Father, I'm going to not look. No, he gave the prophecy. The Father gave it to him. He, in turn, gave it to the angel to give to John. But wait a minute. Didn't Jesus tell his disciples that no one knows the day and hour, not the angels, not the Son, but only the Father? Let's read that, Matthew 24. And by the way, we're going to go to Matthew 24 quite a bit because that is a very, um, that's a very specific passage concerning the details of his glorious return, so we will be referring to it quite a bit. But let's, re-look, let's look at that right now, Matthew 24, and we'll look at verses 36 through 41, and the context is surrounding Jesus' return. Verse 36, But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. So in this passage, I do want to just comment on when Jesus says, but of that day and hour. So if you were to read this in its context, when Jesus was giving the the details surrounding his return, it's referring to the coming, uh, the uh, parousia of the Son of Man. Parousia in the Greek, it actually means your presence, your physical presence. Here's what's interesting. The coming or the, paras- uh, the parousia of Jesus, it's all encompassed in the book of Revelation. Here's something that is often misunderstood. When Jesus says, oh, of that day and hour, some of us might think, okay, 11.59 p.m. on you know, October 25th, 2031. I'm because that's where we landed in our 70-week prophecy, at least that year. So, so, for so for those of us, we might think of that day and hour as a specific hour and minute and day and date. What we're going to find in, this, in our study of the book of Revelation, when it says of that day and hour, it's not referring to a single day. In fact, as you'll see his parousia, it's going to span over days, months, even years. In fact, if you might have thought or maybe had an oversimplistic view of the, the details surrounding Christ, uh, the details surrounding his second return, you might think, okay, there's a time, a day and hour, a specific hour and minute that no one knows, not even the Son, and he's going to come, and then when he comes, that's it. That's not the case at all. In fact, Jesus will make mu- multiple ascensions and descensions the activity will pick up in the end times. Just like Jacob, when he saw the vision of the ladder reaching out to heaven, and it was a picture of Christ ascending and descending and the angels ascending and descending from heaven 
to earth, that's going to be the same thing when it comes to the book of Revelation. Jesus is going to be very busy. The angels are going to be very busy, and he will bring everything to fulfillment. He will fulfill all of the promises, and he will also act on all of the warnings that have been warned. So some of you might say, well, that still doesn't answer the question. Jesus did say, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father of Lone. You might think that I'm contradicting that. And I do want to say, for one, I'm not contradicting that. I'm calling out what Scripture tells us in the very first verse of Revelation. Remember, ROV number one, we must use Scripture with Scripture. As a reminder, the Father gave the Son the entire prophecy of the book of Revelation. The Son is the co-author of Revelation. As co-author, he wrote the times and epics and events up to and after his coming. So here's how we can harmonize. Well, how can Jesus say it? How can he say it there, and yet it's not the case here? And I'm going to get a little technical here. When Jesus made that statement in Matthew 24... He didn't, know the, any, he didn't know the specific details concerning his return at that time. So that was before his death and resurrection. So to harmonize both, we'll consider that Jesus was further glorified after his resurrection and ascension. And he received further revelation. Here are some examples that kind of bring home the point. What do you mean he was given, um, he was further glorified? Well, we'll look at some examples. Let's look at um, the famous uh, account of Pentecost in uh, Peter's great sermon in Acts 2, verse 33. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he, Jesus, has poured forth this which you both see and hear. And technically, it's the Father and Jesus. Here's a truth. The Father and Jesus didn't send the Holy Spirit until after his exaltation. Here's, here, here's, here's, a, here's the point I'm making. Jesus could not have sent the Holy Spirit before his death and resurrection. It needed to be after and we're familiar with John 16 when he was comforting his disciples he says but I tell you the truth it is to your advantage that I go for if I do not go away the helper will not come to you but if I go I will send him to you along with the father will send him to you stay with me here in Matthew 24 when Jesus says no one knows the day and the hour not even the son it wasn't his time to know the details of his coming yet. So let's continue on the point that Jesus was further glorified after his resurrection. And we're all familiar with Ephesians 4. Uh, But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, when he, speaking of Jesus, ascended on high, he, Jesus, led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And now this expression, he ascended, um, what does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he, Jesus, might fill all things. 
So when it says, so that He might fill all things, that's an indication that Jesus received further glory after His ascension. Or during His ascension, you can even say. In Matthew 24, Jesus didn't fill all things yet. Jesus filled all things after His ascension. Again, Jesus was further glorified after Matthew 24. And we're going to look at one more. Philippians 2. Another very, very popular passage beginning in verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus. Although He, Jesus, existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, also, here I'm going to put the persons of the Trinity, God the Father highly exalted God the Son and bestowed on God the Son the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. As we see there, Christ's exaltation. It's tied to His ascension. Jesus wasn't given or exalted or bestowed the name that was above every name at the time of Matthew 24. That came later. He wasn't bestowed the authority and title of Lord not before Matthew 24, but after Matthew 24. Why did I go through all that? What's the point? For starters, because of lack of diligence in handling the text, when, when Jesus said, no one knows the day or the hour, or when Jesus says to be alert, you know, the statement that Jesus made in the Gospels, it has introduced other teachings not intended by Scripture. And I'm going to say this. So like that phrase, oh, no one knows the day or the hour, so He could come at any moment, so to be alert, then that, you know what that did? That introduced other teachings such as there's going to be a secret rapture. Why? Because it says no one knows the day or the hour and, he, and to be alert at all times. No, that was before He was glorified. Before He was further glorified and exalted, He didn't have the details yet. But as we learn in verse 1, the Father gave the Son the details now. And the Son, in turn, sent His angel to give it to John. Jesus wrote Revelation. And He knows exactly when it's going to happen and the times and epics, and it's going to happen. So, this is why Revelation is called the prophecy with blessings. It's filled with blessings because the Lord Jesus Christ was further exalted by His Father. And now, he's, He delivered it by His angel to John, and John is now delivering it to us, the church so let's, let's summarize all this. When it says, you know, we just, just gleaning off that phrase, which God gave him, which God the Father gave God the Son. So to harmonize all this, when Jesus made the statement of not knowing the day or the hour, well, first of all, the day and hour is not talking about a single day or hour, we'll see. But he, he wasn't given the details of his coming. If you even think about when Book of Revelation was written. Okay, so, so if you go back if you kind of look at a timeline, so Jesus died and, and he, he died in the year AD 30. 
He died in AD 30. He ascended 40 days after Nisan 14. So we're talking about from AD 30, here's about a 65, 66 year gap. But in the heavenlies, the Lord Jesus Christ was further exalted by his Father. And then it was time that the Father gave the Son the details, and the Son in turn is now giving it to John, which we are endeavoring. So after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, he was further glorified. And that included the ability to send the Holy Spirit by the Father and the Son. His Father highly exalted him. The Father gave Jesus the authority and title of Lord. And as we're going to see this, who was found worthy to break the seals in the hand of him who sits on the throne? As we'll see, John wept for a while, but there was one who was found worthy. It was the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus received further glory, further exaltation, and it was all the doing of his Father. You can even say that the revelation, it, started with the, you could, it starts with the Father given to the Son and delivered by the Holy Spirit and angels. That's how God operates. But at, so in Christ's exaltation, the Father exalted Him to the fullest and He found Him worthy to receive all honor and authority. And here's what happened. Because the Lord Jesus Christ, during His earthly ministry, humbled Himself as a slave, even to the point of death, the death on the cross, Therefore, the Father highly exalted him. The Father said, Son, I am pleased with your work, your love, your obedience to me. Now I'm going to exalt you. And you are worthy to break the seals that are in my hand. And you are worthy to have all of the details of your Father's doing. Here you go, my son. Wow. The book of Revelation is a book of blessing. It's one of the blessings, the spoils of Christ's victory, if you will, shared with the church. That was just in that one phrase. Now let me ask you a question. Does Jesus know the day and the hour of his return? Amen, he does. Amen, he does. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Now he knows. Back sometime after eighty thirty, I don't know when exactly in the heavenlies that happened, but he was glorified and he was magnified and exalted by his father, except the father himself. The father is always going to be at the top, but second to him in the position of favor is his one and only son. Beautiful, beautiful stuff. Are we ready to look on the next piece? His bond servants. So his is referring to Jesus. Bond servants is the Greek doulos and it, literally means slave. So doulos literally means slaves. There was a lot of slaves at the time of Jesus. But verse 1 is referring not just to slaves in general, but Christ's slaves, Jesus's slaves. And just so you know, I went ahead and did the legwork for you. I said, okay, I looked at every reference of doulos in the New Testament I looked at every reference of doulos, in particular in the book of Revelation. And in the book of Revelation, here are the slaves that are mentioned. The Apostle John is one of Christ's slaves in the book of Revelation. The believers in Thyatira are specifically called doulos. The 144,000 Jews, the sealed Jews, they're called 
doulos. Old Testament prophets spoken of, you know, in, in from the past. They're doulos. The two witnesses who are prophets later in Revelation 11. They're doulos. Moses is called out as a doulos. And then lastly, glorified saints. Glorified saints. Not pre-glorified saints. Glorified saints. After our glorification are called doulos. So, something to keep in mind when we're reading the book of Revelation. This is the audience because it was given to His bondservants of that which must soon take place. This is the primary audience. The Apostle John, the believers in Thyatira, of course, the other seven churches, the 144,000 Jews, the Old Testament prophets, which were the past, two witnesses, Moses, and glorified saints. We do know that it also extends in verse 3, and anyone who reads and hears the words of the prophecy. So a good way to look at it, we are part of verse 3, but we are kind of an extension. We're not the primary. So when you study the Bible, like for example, the book of Ephesians, the primary audience was the believers in Ephesus. It's written to them. It wasn't written to you. It wasn't written to me. It was written by the Apostle Paul to the believers in Ephesus. Yet, the truth and the promises that are spoken of in you know, that book and all the books of the Bible, it's applicable to us. It's applicable to all believers. So if there's a promise made to believers resulting in salvation and the blessings, even though it wasn't written to you primarily, that still applies to you. Just know that in the book of Revelation, we're kind of like a fly on the wall reading this thing because it wasn't written necessarily to us, but blessed is he who reads and hears the words of the prophecy. We can still be blessed by it and the message it contains. So this is going to be important. Understanding who the doulases are, it's important because it was written to them what must soon take place was written to the slaves of Christ. Yeah, we're slaves of Christ as believers, but there's a primary audience here. It wasn't made to just be kind of Lucy and everyone. No, it's, it's a very specific, a very specific targeted audience is a good way to say it. The book of Revelation was a targeted audience. So keep these in mind. And I will refer to it as we progress in our study. Now let's look at the phrase, must soon take place. This is still within verse 1. We're still in verse 1. Some argue that this phrase, because it said it must soon take place, that okay, because it says that, it must be applicable only to the direct recipients of this letter. In other words, the seven churches. Well, first of all, that's already fallacy, because how about the 144,000 Jews? How about the other doulos that I was just mentioning? But some argue saying, well, it's just written to the seven churches. However, remember, ROE number one, thou shalt interpret Scripture with Scripture. Another way to say it, we have to understand prophecy with prophecy. So this phrase, when it says must soon take place, it has to be understood from a prophetic perspective. So from the eyes of the prophet, the vision is soon. Here's, a, here's an example. At the end of the book of Revelation, we get towards the end, 
Jesus said the same thing. And he said to me, these, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he goes on to say, and behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the word of the prophecy of this book. So some people will say, okay, so he, it must soon take place and he's coming quickly. And it must be written to just the seven churches. Oh, so that must mean that the destruction of Jerusalem was the coming. Well, here's the fallacy. It was 27 years or 26 years in the past. What do you mean I'm coming quickly? You mean I've come already? But some will argue because of the the words used, must soon take place, and Jesus says, I am coming quickly. They'll, they'll, They'll try to make it apply just to that first century audience. But the must soon take place, because here we're at the end of the book of Revelation, it's referring to all of the events we haven't even got to yet, and that he's coming quickly is referring to his, Jesus' physical and bodily return. So because it says it must soon take place, and all of the events that are written in the book of Revelation, as we'll see, it hasn't happened yet. It'll be in history books if it did, because some of the things, like here's just one, every island fled away. We have some, you know, we're from the Philippines, some of us. That's an island. Well, at the very end, Philippines will be no more. Hawaii will be no more. Fiji will be no more. Other islands will be no more. But it says must soon take place. That didn't happen yet. That's just one of many of the cataclysmic events that's in store for the world. That would be in history books if something like that happened. Um, has any, has uh, Jesus come physically and bodily yet? His parousia, his presence, is he here? Was he here? No. So must soon take place and quickly, when you hear these phrases, it must be understood from a prophetic perspective. Here's another way, another way to say it. It's on God's timetable. And Peter speaks on God's timetable in Second Peter. 2 Peter 3, verses 8 and 9, But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count as slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So Revelation was written from us about 1926 years ago. So 1,926 years, was that's how old this book is, roughly. That's, from our vantage point, that's a long time, don't you think? So the must soon take place doesn't really jive with 1,926 years. But from God's timeline, it's been less than two days. If we were to go with a day for a year principle. So here's the case in point. When it comes to prophecy, when you see phrases like soon take place or Jesus is coming quickly, we are to view it from the prophet's vantage point and God's timetable, not ours. So let's resist making our own subjective interpretation when it comes to biblical prophecy and take heed to the warning given given in this book. Revelation 22, 19, and then if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life, from the holy city, which are written in this book. Jesus himself warns, if you add or take away from the words of the prophecy of this book, there are consequences. You might not see it. I'm scared to death to be even trying to teach this to you. 
I don't want to add to the prophecy, and I don't want to take away. So if you see me just pausing on the side here, praying, Lord, Abba, I don't want to, but I'm doing it because I believe you want me to. So please be gentle. And please call out my blind spots because I don't want to misspeak for you. So I'm scared. I don't want to get a spiritual spanking. And I don't want anything taken away or added you know, negatively at that time. And Paul warns Timothy on this as well. 2 Timothy 2.15 Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. But avoid worldly and empty chatter for it will lead to further ungodliness and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth saying the resurrection has already taken place and they upset the faith of some. So Paul likens the distortion of Scripture as gangrene. When's the last time you said gangrene? Gangrene is a flesh-eating sore. It's a sore that's eating away at you. And Paul is likening men who don't accurately handle the word of truth as gangrene, as spreading of gangrene. In the example of Hymenaeus and Philetus, here's what they violated. Rule of engagement number seven. Thou shall not over-spiritualize Scripture. So if you think about it, if you go back to the latter part of you know, 2 Timothy 2, verse 18, it says, Men, speaking of Hymenaeus and Philetus, have gone away from the truth saying, this is what they're saying, the resurrection already happened. It's already taken place. And it says, it, by saying that, it upset the faith of some. How else could they say that the resurrection has already taken place? By over-spiritualizing the text. That's the logical deduction. So I'm going to say this in love. You know, and if I, you know, when I ever put a disclaimer, people don't hear it. They're like, did you hear what he just said? How dogmatic. How arrogant. No, I really say this in love. Paul said it concerning, how do you say their name? Hymenaeus and Philetus. Paul said it, called it out. So I'm going to say this in love. You know what's the equivalent of that today? Saying like, oh, Hymenaeus and Philetus, they said that the resurrection already took place. You know what's the equivalent of that today in eschatology? It's like saying, oh, you know the thousand-year reign of Christ in Revelation chapter 20? That's already taken place in the believer's heart. What? That's spiritual gangrene. You just upset the faith of some. Oh, so there's nothing to look forward to? It's already here? There's no, he's not coming? The promised Messiah that he's promised to his people in the Old Testament that we just spent four months studying? He's not coming? The Davidic kingdom? The Davidic, the, the promise of David, I, I will establish your kingdom forever. Oh, but it's in your heart. That's the equivalent. You advocate that, you're infecting believers' faith with a spiritual gangrene. That is an over-spiritualization of the entire chapter and no different of what both Hymenaeus and Philetus did and were rebuked for by the Apostle Paul. Serious stuff. Thank you so much for listening today to Truth Matters Church. 
As we carefully study the Bible, we often find that preconceived ideas about certain passages impact our views of other passages. And that is why it is so important to take Scripture with Scripture and allow the Holy Spirit to guide us into all understanding with His Word as the sole source of truth. If you haven't already, please be sure to mark us as a favorite on Sermon Audio or subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform and connect with us today at truthmatterschurch.org. Contending for the faith one verse at a time. This is Truth Matters Church.